Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 256, The Iron Curtain, Part 1. Last time, we ended the series on the transition of Russia into the Soviet Union and the USSR back into Russia. Today, we start a new series that will look beyond the borders of Russia and into those countries in Eastern Europe that were controlled by the Soviet Union. Given the current situation in Ukraine, I think this topic is very, very important. Former Soviet-aligned countries like Poland are helping the Ukrainians with weapons and supplies. This must truly aggravate Putin and the rest of the higher-ups in the Kremlin as this also shows how the dynamics from the Iron Curtain era have changed. My two primary sources for these episodes include Savage Continent, Europe in the Aftermath of World War II by Keith Lowe, and Iron Curtain, The Crushing of Eastern Europe, 1944 to 1956 by Anne Applebaum. It's always been my intention to have you my loyal listeners, get a feel for those moments in history that may be hard to comprehend in our time. Lowe's book's introduction does just that. It describes very vividly what Europe was like right after World War II. Quote, Imagine a world without institutions. It is a world where borders between countries seems to have dissolved, leaving a single, endless landscape over which people travel in search of communities that no longer exist. There are no governments anymore, on either a national scale or even a local one. There are no schools or universities, no libraries or archives, no access to any information whatsoever. There is no cinema or theater, and certainly no television. The radio occasionally works, but the signal is distant and almost always in a foreign language. No one has seen a newspaper for weeks. There are no railways or motor vehicles, no telephones or telegrams, no post office, no communication at all, except what is passed through the word of mouth. There are no banks, but that is no great hardship because money no longer has any worth. There are no shops because no one has anything to sell. Nothing is made here. The great factories and businesses that used to exist have all been destroyed or dismantled, as have most of the other buildings. There are no tools, save what can be dug out of the rubble. There is no food. Law and order are virtually non-existent because there is no police force and no judiciary. In some areas... There no longer seems to be any clear sense of what is right and what is wrong. People help themselves to whatever they want without regard to ownership. Indeed, the sense of ownership itself has largely disappeared. Goods belong only to those who are strong enough to hold on to them, and those who are willing to guard them with their lives. Men with weapons roam the streets, taking what they want and threatening anyone who gets in their way. Women of all classes and ages prostitute themselves for food and protection. There is no shame. There is no morality. There is only survival. 
This description very nearly mirrors the stories my parents told me of the years after the end of the war. Under this backdrop of hopelessness, fear, hunger, and living with the unknown, an iron curtain would descend on one half of Europe under the control of the Soviet Union. Before going any further, we really have to define the Iron Curtain. It was a line that stretched from the Baltic in the north, along Finland and Norway, then through Poland, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, and Albania. It later became, later became a term for the 7,000-kilometer-long or 4,300-mile physical barrier of fences, walls, minefields, and watchtowers that divided the east and west. The Berlin Wall was also part of this physical barrier. The barriers were usually separated by a border zone that was anywhere from a few hundred yards to over three miles wide. Oftentimes, within this border zone, they would lay landmines as well as sand traps, and they would plant guard towers every few miles. These border zones would also be patrolled by dogs and guards who were given orders to shoot anyone attempting to cross the borders. The term Iron Curtain itself originated as fireproof curtains in theaters in the late 19th century. It is thought that the first use of the term Iron Curtain in Soviet Russia was in Vasily Rozanov's 1918 work, The Apocalypse of Our Time. The passage goes like this, quote, With clanging, creaking, and squeaking, an iron curtain is lowering over Russian history. The performance is over. The audience got up. Time to put on your fur coats and go home. We looked around, but the fur coats and homes were missing. This barrier was also found in the 1945 book, It's Your Empire by Alexander Campbell, in which he described, quote, an iron curtain of silence and censorship, which has descended since the Japanese conquests of 1942. While there were several other times where the term was used, the most famous use of the term iron curtain comes from a speech by Winston Churchill given at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri. Part of the speech, which you can hear online, and I suggested it's just spellbinding, went like this, quote, from Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade, Bucharest, and Sofia. All these famous cities and the populations around them lie in what I must call the Soviet sphere and are all subject, in one form or another, not only to Soviet influence, but to a very high, and in some cases increasing, measure of control from Moscow. Now, as you might imagine, this did not go over well with the Soviet Union's leaders. Stalin dismissed it as propaganda. Andrei Zhidanov responded in August 1946 with the following, quote, Hard as bourgeois politicians and writers may strive to conceal the truth of the achievements of the Soviet order and Soviet culture, hard as they may strive to erect an iron curtain to keep the truth about the Soviet Union from penetrating abroad, 
hard as they may strive to belittle the genuine growth and scope of Soviet culture, all their efforts are foredoomed to failure. The countries that were behind the Iron Curtain, but were not part of the Soviet Union, were as follows. The German Democratic Republic, the People's Republic of Bulgaria, the People's Republic of Poland, the Hungarian People's Republic, the Czechoslovak Socialist Republic, the People's Republic of Romania, and the People's Republic of Albania. In addition, Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania were annexed by the Soviet Union. In addition, other Soviet annexed territories included Eastern Poland, which was incorporated into the Ukrainian and Belarusian SSRs, part of Eastern Finland, which became part of the Kirillo-Finnish SSR, Northern Romania, part which became the Moldavian SSR, the Kaliningrad Oblast, which previously been part of the northern half of East Prussia, and part of eastern Czechoslovakia, known as the Carpathian Ruthenia. These became incorporated into the Ukrainian SSR. One country initially behind the Iron Curtain was the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, which became somewhat independent of the USSR. It followed a policy of neutrality following the Tito-Stalin split in 1948. Now, the stated reason by the Soviet Union for the need for an Iron Curtain was that it wanted to keep the bourgeois influences out of these countries and make sure that any remaining fascists post-World War II could be captured, tried, and executed. They told everyone that the big bad West would pollute the minds of their socialist comrades and ruin any chance of creating a socialist utopia. But, of course, the real reason was to keep the people from leaving the so-called social paradise. In the late 1940s through 1950s, thousands and thousands of East Germans streamed through the borders between their now communist country and West Germany. Those who were leaving mainly were not peasant farmers or industrial laborers. They were college-educated and highly skilled citizens. The decision to split Europe after World War II was decided at two conferences, Yalta, held from February 4th to the 11th of 1945, and Potsdam, held from July 17th until August 2nd, 1945. At Yalta, it was a meeting of the heads of government of the United States, the United Kingdom, and the Soviet Union to discuss the post-war reorganization of Germany and Europe. The three states were represented by President Franklin D. Roosevelt, Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and General Secretary Joseph Stalin. By this time, France and Belgium had already been liberated from the West, and Poland, Bulgaria, and Romania had seen the German forces evicted. The Red Army at that time was only 60 kilometers or 45 miles away from Berlin. The prize of Berlin was what Stalin wanted above all, along with control of Poland. The Soviet leader admitted that Poland had been greatly sinned against, but he claimed that he wanted a strong, independent Poland because it was often used as a staging ground for an invasion of Russia. The American President Roosevelt was in very ill health at the time, as he would die of a stroke just two months later. Nevertheless, 
Roosevelt was upset with the Soviet leader as he went back against his word regarding the liberation of Poland and how they handled German prisoners of war, among other issues. Stalin, in turn, accused the Western allies of plotting behind his back a separate peace with Hitler. Roosevelt replied, quote, I cannot avoid a feeling of bitter resentment towards your informers, whoever they are, for such vile misrepresentations of my actions or those of my trusted subordinates. Nevertheless, there were some realists on the American side of negotiations. According to U.S. delegation member and future Secretary of State James F. Burns, quote, It was not a question of what we would let the Russians do, but what we could get the Russians to do. British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, of course, never trusted Stalin and knew he would never abide by the agreements made at Yalta. He was absolutely right. Churchill commented that, quote, Poor Neville Chamberlain believed he could trust Hitler. He was wrong. But I don't think I'm wrong about Stalin. Despite concerns from his delegation, Roosevelt told the U.S. Congress on March 1st, 1945, quote, I come from the Crimea with a firm belief that we made a start on the road to a world peace. Within a month after the Yalta Conference, NKVD officers arrested many Polish political leaders who had been invited to participate in provisional government negotiations. The Polish elections held on January 16, 1947, which were a total sham, resulted in Poland's official transformation to a communist state by 1949. This is when they officially went behind the Iron Curtain. When the Potsdam Conference was held, the three countries of the USSR, Great Britain, and the US were represented by Joseph Stalin, Prime Ministers Winston Churchill, and Clement Attlee, and President Harry S. Truman. During the conference, the British elections were held, with Attlee defeating Churchill. The significant decisions made at Potsdam included Germany's division into four occupation zones among the three powers and France that had been agreed to earlier. In addition, Germany's eastern border was to be shifted west to the Oder-Nisi line. This was done to appease the Poles as the Soviets held onto Polish lands that they negotiated with the Nazis. The Soviet-backed group was recognized as the legitimate government of Poland, and in a strange agreement, Vietnam was to be partitioned at the 16th parallel. Now, this would be part of the precipitation of the American involvement in a war in Vietnam in the 1960s and 70s. The Soviets occupied Central and Eastern Europe in the time between Yalta and Potsdam. Additionally, as I mentioned before, the Baltic states of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia were forcibly reincorporated into the USSR, while the Red Army also occupied Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Bulgaria, and Romania. The lines of the Iron Curtain were now fully drawn. So, why did the Soviet Union so desperately create this Iron Curtain to keep people within their own borders? Part of it was the realization by their own troops upon entering Germany that their living conditions were far worse than their Western counterparts. It was akin to the same eye-openings that happened to the Russian forces which defeated Napoleon in the early 19th century. 
Anne Applebaum shared this in her book, Iron Curtain, quote, Since the time of the revolution, Russians have been told of the poverty, unemployment, and misery of capitalism and about the superiority of their own system. But even upon entering eastern Poland, at that time one of the poorest parts of Europe, they found ordinary peasants who owned several chickens, a couple of cows, and more than one change of clothes. Applebaum then shared an excerpt from the book A Writer at War, Vasily Grossman with the Red Army. Quote, Our soldiers have seen the two-story suburban homes with electricity, gas, bathrooms, and beautifully tended gardens. Our people have seen the villas of the rich bourgeoisie in Berlin, the unbelievable luxury of castles, estates, and mansions. And thousands of soldiers repeat these angry questions when they look around them in Germany. They ask, but why did they come to us? What did they want? With this anger and frustration, along with the deaths of so many of their comrades in the war, Red Army soldiers would continue to commit heinous crimes against the populations of the countries they would liberate. One story went this way. Quote, the Russian soldier broke into a smile, removed the submachine gun from his neck, walked up to the old man, and according to Russian custom, kissed him gently from right to left on the cheeks. He said he was a Jew, too. For a time, he silently and heartily squeezed the old man's hand. Then he hung the submachine gun around his neck again and ordered the old gentleman to stand in the corner of the room with his entire family and to turn with raised hands toward the wall. After this, the Russian robbed them slowly at his leisure. Now, this was an almost pleasant robbery by the standards that continued for the first year or so of Soviet occupation of Eastern Europe. The Red Army would not only loot the citizens, but women would be gang-raped and sometimes murdered afterward. Violence against all the people they came across would lead to a great distrust of the Soviet government. In Hungary, a deeply Catholic country, they lifted the ban on abortions in February 1945. Their social minister said the following in January 1946, quote, As an effect of the front and the chaos following it, there were a lot of children born whose families did not want to take care of them. I ask hereby the Bureau of Orphanages to qualify all babies as abandoned whose date of birth is from nine months to 18 months after the liberation. The violence that the citizens of Eastern Europe endured was one thing that made them resentful of the Soviet Union. The theft of everything they had of any value by the communists was another. It wasn't just the belongings of the citizenry. It was the factories that Stalin demanded be shipped back to the USSR as part of the reparations they felt were due to them. Quote, according to the Soviet ministry data collected by Norman Neymark, 1,280,000 tons of materials and 3,600,000 tons of equipment had been removed from eastern Germany between the invasion and the beginning of August. One of the problems that the Soviets had after the war was determining who would run the countries they had control over. There were communists within each of the nations that remained in the country, fighting as partisans against the Nazi occupiers. The problem with them 
It was a lack of trust by the Soviets in those people, as they were unsure of their steadfast loyalty to Moscow. The only ones they really trusted were those deemed to be, quote-unquote, Moscow communists. The Moscow communists were those who were ideologically trained in the Soviet Union. As Applebaum puts it, Moscow communists would play a key role in the formation of the first post-war governments all across Europe. Clement Gutwald, the Czechoslovak Little Stalin, had been a common turn leader, as had Joseph Tito, the Yugoslav partisan leader who became Yugoslavian dictator. Georgi Dimitrov, Bulgaria's Little Stalin, was actually the Comintern's boss for nearly a decade. Both Maurice Therese, the leader of the French Communist Party during and after the war, and Palmero Togliatti, who played the same role in Italy, were Moscow communists too. Both men were intimately involved in Comintern affairs, and had the chance ever presented itself, they would have been Stalin's designated puppets in Western Europe. There were one or two exceptions. Uh, Romania's post-war Communist Party was run by Gheorghe Gheorghiu Dej, a local communist, but he still went out of his way to demonstrate his fealty to Stalin whenever possible. The allegiance to Stalin was something that was not only expected of the hierarchy of the newly installed communist governments, but it was also expected of the newly conquered people. This would necessitate the formation of what some called little KGBs within each of the countries under Soviet control. Many of the members of the new secret police were trained before the end of the war to ensure their loyalty to the Soviet Union and not their country of origin. Poland would be the first country to have a fully developed NKVD-trained secret police force. It began with 200 men known as the Kubyashev Gang. They would be the backbone of this Polish version, initially known as the UB, and, and then the SB. The type of person who would become a member of any Iron Curtain secret police was typically very uneducated. As Applebaum put it, quote, far from being diabolically well-trained, these new recruits were also overwhelmingly uneducated. In 1945, less than 20% had any education beyond primary school. Even in 1953, only half had made it past the equivalent of sixth grade. And as a result, these men and women were easily manipulated and would be easier to indoctrinate into the Soviet communist ways. Additionally, they saw being a member of the secret police as a way to move up in the world and enjoy the perks that came with the job. Typically, they would have access to better housing, better food, and a car if they were high enough in the chain of command. Early on, the Soviet NKVD agents planted throughout Eastern Europe, nor those in the Kremlin, did not trust their local counterparts. That's one of the reasons they were stationed in Hungary, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, and East Germany. Sometimes they were put in charge of the headquarters of the secret police. Sometimes they would be planted as ordinary citizens. In Hungary, the secret police were known as the AVH. Even as late as 1952, there were 33 Soviet secret police on the AVH payroll. 
This position, while powerful, was also dangerous. This would especially prove true during the Hungarian Revolution in 1956. All NKVD officers fled the country, fearing for their lives and families. The country that, for obvious reasons, fared especially poorly early on was East Germany. The Soviets had gutted and removed all industrial capacity from the occupied territory in reprisal for their participation in World War II. Even those who identified as German communists who survived and helped the Red Army were viewed with suspicion. As Applebaum explains, quote, The Soviet officers considered Germans, even German communists, in need of far more tutelage than other Eastern Europeans. Ordinary German policemen were not allowed to carry weapons until January 1946. Even after German authorities took control of the civilian police, all personnel decisions still had to be approved by the Soviet military administration. Only in March 1948 did the Soviet Interior Ministry boss in the Eastern Zone even agree to inform the German Communist Party leadership about whom it intended to arrest. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time when we continue our discussion of the Iron Curtain. So, until next time, das vidanya y spasiba za vinyamanya. <laughs>